Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness towards us. And as we look at your completion of your faithfulness towards Noah, uh, we have all the more the promise that you will be faithful towards all of your promises to us, that uh, we await a new world, a new day, a world in which our bodies will be restored, a world in which the curse will be taken away, a world in which there will be no more death. So we thank you, Lord, and we, we praise you. We pray that our mind is continually set on you, and uh, we pray that you give us grace enough for the day. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. <clears throat> it's probably no surprise we're in Genesis this morning. We have made it to our fifth series in Genesis. So we're asking another big question, and I'm going to do something a little different this time. Rather than waiting till the end to answer the question, we get the answer to the question right up front. Our question for this sermon series is, has God forgotten us? As Mark mentioned, this has been the longest period in history, the age of grace. It might be a temptation for many to say God's not coming back. That was even the temptation for people in Peter's day when uh, they said, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they have been from the beginning. There is this constant attitude in the world of God's not here today doing what he promises to do tomorrow. Therefore, he must not be coming tomorrow. We want to remember that his promises for the future are perfectly secure as if they have already happened because he is a faithful God who has promised those things. So we are halfway through the Toledot of Noah. Again, this is the longest section in Genesis 1 through 11, and it is uh, the longest yet until we get to Abraham. That's going to be the longest section in all of Genesis. But God is obviously highlighting Noah's story here. He wants us to learn something from it. He wants Israel to learn something from it, the original audience for Genesis. He is teaching them about his character, his perseverance towards, uh, towards the sin of, in this world. For example, this long age of grace that we are in, this is his perseverance. We are thankful that he has not come yet, though we long for him to come, because the moment he comes back, grace is over. The door is closed and judgment comes. So those who want Jesus, want God to come and fix all the problems of this earth, unless they are resting in his salvation, this is praying for their own judgment to come. We should be mindful of this as we go out and share the word of God with others, that grace, the period of grace has an end. But this morning, we start to look at what comes after that period of grace ends and the period of judgment ends. What is left after that? Sometimes we stop thinking about things after the judgment. But the judgment is not the end. The judgment is just the beginning for those who have been carried through judgment in the safety of God's grace. So this morning, we look at the remembrance of God. Genesis 8, God remembering Noah, God rolling back the judgment on this earth, God restoring all things. 
So our main point is the Creator does not abandon His creation. He has promised to make all things new, and He and He alone will do just that. He will be glorified in all of creation. Now you'll notice my main point has a lot of creation language in it. That's because Genesis 8 is essentially a recreation of the world. Noah, or Moses rather, goes to some length in the use of language here to parallel the creation account with the post-flood account. So let's start by looking at God's remembrance of Noah. First, it's important to point out that this is the center, the highlight, the focal point of the flood narrative. This is a chiasm, something we see often in scripture, where there are paralleling events so that the center or so that the ends might be highlighted. I know that's very small. We're just paying attention to K. That's where we're at today. God remembered Noah. We went through Noah and his sons, his life on earth, the curse on the earth, the ark, living creatures, the food to survive on the ark, animals in man's hand, entry into the ark, the waters increased, the mountains were covered, and then this focal point, the peak of the mountain here in Genesis. And as we go through and finish this Toledot of Noah, we see that the events will parallel. This one stands at the top of the mountain. God remembered Noah. In this morning's reading, the mountains are going to become visible. We'll see the waters fully decrease, and then they will exit the ark. We will see the animals in man's hand in sacrifice. We will see food established for man after the flood. All living creatures, part of the covenant made with God. We'll see more about the ark, the blessing on the earth rather than the cursing of the earth. Statements about all life on earth and then what happened to Noah and his sons. This is God drawing a giant circle around this statement. God remembered Noah. So what does that mean? We might be tempted to read between the lines, something we shouldn't read here, that God forgot Noah for a time. That is nowhere here. Often we do this, we read in the negative. We'll see something that, uh, for example, in the epistles where it says, you will be saved. We read then, if you don't do this, then you won't be saved. We shouldn't read the negative into the text. We read the positive. Absolutely, for certain, without a doubt, God remembered Noah. God remembers Noah and he remembers all of the beasts. What does this remembrance of God mean? It's used in a very special way. It's a Hebraism, kind of an idiom that the Hebrews would use about God acting on behalf of someone. He is remembering Noah, but specifically something about Noah. He is remembering his promises to Noah. Arnold Fruchtenbaum on this word writes, the word remember does not mean remember in the sense that God temporarily forgot about the ark and its inhabitants. Rather, it means remembering in the sense of moving toward the object. The sense was that of God remembering a covenant, although in this case, the covenant itself had not yet been made. 
That should stand out. Look how faithful God is to his covenant. He is faithful to his covenant that he hasn't even made yet. This is a faithful God. <clears throat> we find evidence to support this interpretation of remember when we look through scripture. Genesis 19.29, written by the same author, Moses, says, Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham. God had just left the presence of Abraham. Surely that was not enough time to forget about him. But he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. He overthrew the cities which Lot lived in. So how is this that he remembered Abraham then? He remembered his promise to Abraham that he would not destroy the righteous with the unrighteous. He was faithful to his promise to Abraham. And how about to Israel at large? Remember, Genesis is written to Israel in the Exodus generation, immediately after God remembered them and brought them out of Egypt. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. He did not forget them while they were in Israel for 400 years. In Genesis 15, he prophesied the exact length of time they would be in Egypt. He did not forget. He remembered. God remembers Israel as well. And we see this at the end of Mary's prayer after she becomes pregnant with the Messiah. Luke 1.54 says, He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. God remembered his promise to send a Messiah, to send a Savior. He was faithful to that promise as well. So here when it says that God remembered Noah, we should be thinking about his promise. He says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. This is going to be the key idea in this sermon series. As we go through the rest of chapters 8 and 9, the focus is on this covenant that God is going to make with Noah. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it because we're going to be talking about it for the next five weeks. But this is the third covenant in Scripture, and it is the first time we actually see these words, covenant. God has made promises. God has placed expectations on mankind before. But there is something unique about this covenant and this new creation that he's making with sinful man where they will need to approach him on the basis of sacrifice. This Noahic covenant is still in effect today. This is a big deal. So we're going to take a look at that over the next few weeks. But with such a focus on covenants, it's odd here that God's covenant name is not used in the text. Here the name for God is Elohim, not Yahweh. We might wonder then, why is that? Well, first, the covenant has not yet been cut. First, 
God has to recreate the earth. What the focus in this passage is, though it looks forward to the covenant, looks forward to the promise, the purpose is this covenant. God is seen here in his creative attributes, his power and his sovereignty to recreate. And it starts the same way the creation began, with the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Now, there are all kinds of crazy ideas about what this wind is. I think my favorite that I read in a commentary this week was that God sent a wind so strong that it blew all the water off into space. A little nuts. Another one was that he sent hot wind, so it all evaporated into space. This is not the normal word for wind. It's probably a decent translation here. It makes sense of what's going on in the text. But I like footnotes, and I think our Bible should have a little footnote. This is the same word, ruach, as is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. This is not the first time he has sent a wind over the water-covered earth. He did it first in his creative work on the first day of creation. And he is doing it now again because he is making all things new. He is recreating. Peter affirms this as well. He says the old world, the world that was present at the time before the flood, was destroyed being flooded with water. How do you fix something that's destroyed? You recreate it. How do we get then the present heavens and the present earth? That's what Moses is describing here in the text. God did not just drain the old earth and let us have it back to do what we will with. He completely recreated for his purposes. That's why when we went through and saw a few... Uh, location names in chapters 2 or 3. We didn't identify them on a map. This world is not the same as the world that was. The world that we have today looks quite a bit different. So this is the second creation of the world. It parallels the creation account in many ways. In fact, it works well to color code the, uh, the parallels here. The earth is in focus. It's the primary object of God's creation. It's being done by a wind, a spirit, a ruach, an unseen force. And the, what is being used is the waters of the deep. On day two, the focus is the waters in the sky. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse and the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. We see in verse 2 of chapter 8, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky, the waters below and the waters above, were closed. The rain from the sky was restrained. 
Day three, dry ground appeared from the waters. God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into the place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And in verse 14 of chapter 8, in the second month, in the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Now verses 3 through 7 are probably a bit better to explain this, but that's what we're going through in the rest of the sermon, so I'm not going to read them all just here. And if this were just one parallel, it wouldn't be very significant. But the fact that this parallels on every single day that was affected by the flood is significant. Day four, there is no parallel because this was a global flood, not a universal flood that extended to the extraterrestrial bodies, the sun, moon, and the stars. Those stayed in their natural orbits. And in fact, that's going to be very important as well. Because when we look at God's covenant faithfulness, he is going to say, until those things disappear, until the sun, moon, and the stars disappear, I will be faithful to my covenants. Why is that? Because even last time he destroyed, he didn't touch those. That's how faithful God is to his covenants. Day five, though, the birds swarmed above the earth and flew across the expanse. What is going to happen next week in our sermon? He's going to send out a few birds to fly over the expanse. I'm sure in Noah's 330-some days on the ark, there were plenty of things that Moses could have chosen to write about. Moses was very careful about the events that he chose to write. He is purposefully here paralleling creation because God is recreating. Day six had the creation of the wild animals and the creation of man. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and creeping things, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. He is reestablishing the animal kingdom. They are brought forth. They are called living things. And their purpose is to breed and spread over the earth. And then he creates man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In Genesis 9-7, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Again, if this fit for a day or two, it would be perhaps insignificant. But this is more than significant. Day seven, we saw the rest of God and his blessing over the creation. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now we're going to come back to this when we see the ark resting on the mountain, because this is not the same word used for rest. He is changing his vocabulary, and when Moses changes his vocabulary, the wonderful writer that he is, we pay attention. 
But we see that this did cause a relief for Noah. Noah, who had been carried through judgment, who could safely rest in the arms of God, still must have felt his heart flutter a bit when he saw God working again. When he looked out and didn't just see God's judgment, but he felt God's recreation when his boat brushes up against the mountain and for the first time in 200 plus days, he is resting. Here it says that God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. This word for subside does not mean to decrease or diminish in size. It means to diminish in ferocity, in intensity. The waters abated, they calmed. They calmed down so that they could withdraw. title of this slide is wrong. This is Exodus 14, 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the earth swept the, let's see, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. Israel had just experienced this. They've seen the creative work of God. They've seen the restorative work of God. They're watching it on a small scale while Moses is telling them of the large scale. So let's look a bit at the process, how it happened from beginning to end. Remember, the earth was a little different back then. It had less water on it, probably more land. There was water below the earth and there was water above the earth. Perhaps both of those things have changed today. At a certain point in God's schedule, the earth broke open. The fountains of the great deep burst. And this would not just be a simple oozing of water out of the crust. This would be violent and volcanic. This would cause the rains that lasted over the earth for 40 days. But it was 150 days before the earth or the water on the earth abated, before the water on the earth calmed down. So we have 110 days where it's not raining, but it is violent. Henry Morris explains how this might happen. He says sharp temperature differentials would have been established between equator and poles. He's talking about the effect of having the entire globe covered in water. Great air movements begun. These would soon have been complicated by the Earth's rotation so that the present complex system of atmospheric circulations would finally be initiated. The early phases in particular would probably have been quite violent. With nothing but shoreless oceans, these winds would have generated tremendous waves and currents. The wind that God sends is calming the seas. We see him do this in the Gospels as well. He has the power to calm a violent sea. When Jesus does this in the Gospels, we should be thinking here of God's power over the great sea, 
of Noah's flood. God turned a violent judgment, a catastrophe, into a peaceful ocean. This is how the beginning of the recreation began. How did he do this? First, the wind that he sent. And then, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. The rain from the sky was restrained, and the waters receded. Here, this does mean that they began to drain. They receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. That's an ingressive decreased. That means that they began to decrease. And that receding, this word steadily, actually comes from the doubling up of the verb. It says the water receded, receded. It's an absolute infinitive, which has the idea of not steadily and calmly, but quickly, more and more. We saw that when the waters were rising, I think last week or maybe two weeks ago, it was more and more the waters increased. This is steady, but it is not slow by any means. The water was quickly draining, and it's still going to take over 100 days. That was a lot of water. It was a big flood. But closing the fountains of the deep would involve, again, plate tectonics. He's shifting the crust again. This is how the earth today, which still has the water on it, it was not flung out into space. This is how the water was gathered into oceans. He rose the continents up higher when he closed the floodgates. All the sediment that had been uh, put into the low levels of the sea, when he began to push those continental shelves back together, we can think of the Himalayan mountains, they compressed and we got folded mountains. All over Asia you see these. Opposite side of the earth from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Creationists aren't surprised by this. Evolutionists have some wacky ideas about how that happened. And when they can't answer something, they just throw millions and millions of years at it. You give it enough time, it could happen. No, God did this pretty quick. In fact, those mountains, scientists say that uh, it looks like it was made in a matter of minutes, but that's impossible. Not impossible, probable. And again, this happened at the end of 150 days. 150 days, God left that judgment on the earth. That might seem like a long time for us. Might seem like a long time for Noah. At the time his, uh, his boat hit the mountain, Mount Ararat, it had been, what was it, 225 days or so? I did the calculation. We had just started Genesis 225 days ago. It's been a while. Here in Psalm, verses, or chapter 104, verses 6 through 9, the psalmist records for us the process of the flood. It says, You covered it, the earth, with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. 
At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to, to the place which you established for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass over, so that they will not return to cover the earth. When I was a little kid, my grandma had a, or she still lives on a lake. I was always terrified being on that lake that the uh, glaciers are going to melt and it's going to come in a huge tsunami and wash me away because this is what my third grade teacher told me. God set boundaries. Yes, there are fluctuations in his climate, but this is not our worry. He said this would happen, but he also said that there is an impassable boundary. We're not to be worried about the earth in this manner. God is worried about the earth in this manner. We are to be worried about our relationship to God. Are we on the ark or are we not? Everyone else who is not on the ark might be worried about how they are going to stop these waves of judgment coming, but not one of them would succeed. For us, it's the cross of Christ. How are we related to the cross of Christ? This is what each person on this earth has to figure out. Not how do we keep the oceans from rising one meter. And finally, the earth or the ark rests. In this, we get its location. I'm pretty conservative about the location of Noah's ark. I don't have a crazy idea. I think the text means exactly what it says. I think it landed in the mountains of Ararat. Mountains of Ararat are defined elsewhere in scripture as Armenia. In Jeremiah, this is a mountainous region. People try to come up with excuses for why it might not be the Mount of Ararat. I don't buy it. I think it was Mount Ararat. And I think so because of the text. Look in verse 5, the tops of the mountains became visible only after another 90 days. If he is on a lower mountain peak, where is Mount Ararat? Why is that not visible if he's on a lower peak? I think he's on the highest peak. I think he's on Mount Ararat. The reason people don't like that is because the ark isn't up there right now. At least no one's found it. That's not much of a problem. Where's the Mayflower today? It was taken down to build a barn. How many trees were there after the flood? Not many. Where are they going to get lumber to build their homes? Probably the ark. This is not an issue. It's not an issue, at least, that makes us need to change what the text clearly says. It landed on the mountains of Ararat. The highest peak most likely because it took 90 days for him to see another peak. Either it was there and it decayed or it slid down or it was taken apart. All of those are viable options. Josephus, who was writing in the time of Christ, about 2,500 years after the flood event, wrote this, the ark rested on the top of a certain mountain in Armenia the Armenians called this place the place of descent. For the ark being saved in, the, in that place, its remains 
are shown there by the inhabitants to this day. Now all the writers of barbarian histories make mention of this flood and of this ark, among whom is Barassus, describing the circumstances of the flood, he goes on thus. It is said there is still some part of the ship in Armenia at the mountain of Cordyans, and that some people carry pieces of bitumen, which they take away and use chiefly as amulets for the averting of mischiefs. Now, in uh, recent decades, they had to stop people from taking things from the pyramids because they were slowly, piece by piece, chipping away the whole thing. In fact, it looks quite, uh, quite different from how it would in the past. It would have had a smooth surface, and it's been so looted that it looks rough on the outside now. Think of it, um, think of the Ark in the days before UNESCO, right? People could go up there and take any pieces of it they wanted. It would not be surprising if it was fully taken apart. I wouldn't be surprised if it is still there, perhaps buried under a glacier somewhere. Maybe to be revealed in the uh, last days as a final testament to scripture. But I don't think that's so necessary either. That would only heap up judgment because they would have even more proof of scripture, which they have already denied. Josephus quotes Nicholas Damascus, who is a pagan writer. Nicholas Damascus has a particular relation about them where he speaks thus, there is a great mountain in Armenia over Minyas called Baris, upon which it is reported that many who fled at the time came on shore upon the top of it, and that the remains of the timber were a great while preserved, insinuating that they are no longer preserved. This might be the man about whom Moses, the legislator of the Jews, wrote. He is not trying to defend scripture here. He says, there's a boat up there. Maybe this is the one that the Jews think belonged to Noah. The evidence comes to us backwards. Unfortunately, this does make it weighty, weighty for the unbeliever. Scripture says the boat was up there, so we believe it. But this does add evidence. Nicholas Damascus was not trying to say the Bible was true. He was trying to figure out, taking Moses' word as history, trying to figure out what this boat is. Now there are pictures that uh, seem to look a lot like an ark. Perhaps it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. But it could be. Notice it's not on the top of the ark. I think the explanation for that was it's in the flood valley of this mountain. Perhaps it slid down. Ararat is a volcano, after all. But what I think is a bit more impressive is the location itself that God chose to place Mo or Noah. Because God is going to give Noah an imperative to go populate the earth. As part of the Noahic covenant, he says, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. 
the idea here, and we'll see that when we get to chapter 11, is for them to spread out over all the earth. Again, it's almost as if God knew what he was doing, placing him at the center of that continent in the mountainous region that they could depart in any direction and not have to cross over a large mountain range to get to anywhere in the established continent. God could have put him in the middle of Africa and they might have found their way to the Middle East and eventually to Asia. He put them right in the center. He put them right in the center and sent them in all directions and they did not go. They went east to Shinar. The text also gives us some more time statements. Remember, this is the most attested to event in Genesis 1 through 11 with the most specific dates. It was the seventh month on the 17th day that the ark rested, that it finally touched ground. And it was the 10th month on the first day that another mountain peak was made visible. Now, a lot of things are happening on day 150. They entered the ark seven days before the rains began. The rains began the day the clock started. The rain continued for 40 days. And it says after 150 days, not 150 more days. So this is 110 days after the rains stopped. The waters continued to prevail, but then they began to decrease. They hit their apex on day 150. Imagine this, the very day that the ark rests on the top of the mountain. It's almost as if it remained that high just long enough to place him up there on that mountain. And immediately in the seventh month on the 17th day, five months after the flood began to the day, the ark was resting on the mountain. 90 more days, actually 90 more minus 17. What is that? Somebody? <laughs> 70 something days, the mountains became visible. All right. My math skills are a little embarrassing. My apologies. Lamech's prophecy. Do you remember back in chapter 5 when Lamech made a prophecy about his son Noah and said, this boy is going to give rest to the whole earth? Actually, I have it here. Genesis 5:28. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying this one will give rest rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, rising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. It was rest specifically from the effects of the curse, the effects of God's judgment. Now Noah is brought through a different judgment and Noah is given rest. He does not bring it about. He is given this kind of rest. Again, this is not the normal word for rest. There are two more common words for rest in the Old Testament. The first is Shabbat. We see that in Genesis 2.2. 2. 
God's work after he finished creating was a Shabbat rest. There is also Sa'an rest. This one's a little bit more natural, I guess you could say. There aren't many special contexts to this one. This is a neutral rest. Abraham says to some visitors that he gets one day in the very Jewish hospitable way, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Sa'an. This is not the word used in Genesis 8.4. Rather, Rather, it's the word for rest that is related to Noah's name that was a play on words for Lamech. He called his name Noah, saying this one will give us Naham, rest. And this word for rest has a connotation of comfort, not necessarily a cessation of labor, but being comforted in one's position. Lamech did not prophesy on God's behalf. This was a statement he made about his son, which he concocted on his own. It is relevant that in the text it does not say, Noah parked the boat on top of Mount Ararat. God carried it through. God gave him rest. Noah did not create this rest. Noah is not the one we are waiting for. God used Noah. But Emmanuel is the one who will give rest. Rest from the curse. As Lamech prophesied about Noah. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, the new heavens and the new earth. His bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is the rest that Lamech thought he was getting. This is the rest that he needs Emmanuel for. Matthew 11, verse 27. Jesus, who is about to be rejected by Israel, is making one final plea with them to receive him as their Messiah. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The issue here is knowing a kenosis, an intimate knowledge of, a relational knowledge of the Son. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now I've heard this explained that the only uh, yoke that was given to Jesus was obedience. Certainly we are to be obedient, but this is not what the context is speaking of here. Taking on the yoke of Christ does not taking, mean taking on the work of Christ. 
it means taking on the name of Christ. Casting your cares, casting your fears on him, casting your eternal destiny on him. Throwing in your lot with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, rather than with the false teachers who are pointing away from him. The idea here is not be obedient and I will give you rest. It is believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and you will have rest. As Mark said in the announcements, obedience is how we show our love for God. It's not how we get saved. Unless you're speaking of obedience as the command to believe. That is the one case in which obedience is required for salvation. Obedience in the command to believe. <clears throat> Far more than just the curse will be rolled back. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. And just as God recreated in the days of Noah, brought Noah safely on his ship through the judgment waters of the ark, so he brings his people through the judgment waters of the tribulation. And on the other side of that comes a new world, a new hope, a new promise that he will be faithful to. He has already made that covenant. How much more then, if he was faithful to a covenant to Noah that he hadn't even made yet, how much more will he be faithful to the covenants that he has made? Those covenants which find their terminus in that day and age. We are promised a portion in this world to come. And the only way to get there is to get on the ark. The ark for us is not a big boat. It's a small cross. Room enough for only one man because he has taken on the judgment for us so that it is accounted to our credit, through faith alone. How do you get on the ark? You believe in the one who was hung on the cross, who died for our sins, who underwent the judgment that we deserve so that we would not have to. Faith alone gets you to that new world. So our takeaway this morning, the creator does not abandon his creation. We are his creation. We are a new creation in him. We will not be abandoned. He has promised to make all things new. He and he alone will do just that and he will be glorified in all creation. Let us pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your glory that we see throughout creation, your glory that we see in your perseverance towards those who have not believed, that you have waited so long for more to get on the ark of salvation, the cross of Christ. We pray that we might be a light in this world as we continue to trust in your salvation so that others might see that hope and want that hope, that promise of a new world to come and the promise of fellowship in this world as we wait the next. We pray these things, Lord, for your glory in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.